Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. But today we have to make a distinction because my guest is Cynthia Zarin, and her book is An Enlarged Heart, which she particularly describes as a personal history rather than a memoir. And so we'll talk a little bit about that distinction as we talk. So yes, let's plunge right into the uh, the distinction that you make as to why an enlarged heart is not, strictly speaking, a memoir. A memoir, I think, has a narrative arc, just beginning in childhood and where you were born and experiences one after another that go forward. Mine is really what you said when we were speaking, which is it's stories about my life, but they're really episodes. It's not a a narrative with a beginning, a middle, and end, an end. Uh, nor does it really dwell on my family or personal details in the way that most memoirs do. There are a number of different essays in here, and there are certainly some common themes that appear in an overlapping way between those essays, but they also, each of them is very discrete in its own way, discrete in the sense of separate or singular rather than Although I guess there is a certain amount of discretion in them as well. And it's also, I think, another important distinction to make here is that while a memoir is often done as a single project, these are essays that you have been working on for the better part of a decade or more. They go back even further than that. I think the history of the book was that I wrote the title essay, which was about my youngest daughter being taken very suddenly ill in the impact on our family and friends of that episode. She's fine now and has been since then. But I had not written very much of this kind of work at all. I'd really just, as a prose writer, only done reporting for The New Yorker, except for Talk of the Town years ago and, and that sort of thing. With the exception of, in the 90s, the wonderful Holly Bruback was editor of the style part of the New York Times magazine, and she commissioned me to write a few pieces that were, well, a number of pieces that were called Gateways, which were just 400-word essays on anything at all about the material world. And to some degree, this book might have been called Meditations on the Material World. And of course, that's pretty much anything, but they were only 400 words, and, and what I think was wonderful that Holly did is they were very close to poems because they were so short. And three of the essays in this book come from those 400 words, Curtains, Spurlonga, and Curious Yellow, all began as 400-word essays for the New York Times Magazine in maybe 1995. Mm -hmm. So when I was asked to write this book, I went back to those, and it was interesting to see how I really been in the most tedious way, thinking about the same things for many years. And in doing that writing, each of those essays that you cited is greatly expanded upon yes. those original 400-word yeah. roots. I think one of them, the longest one, is Spurlonga, and I think that's about 8,000 words, so it really did multiply and, and digress from its original topic, which was having not bought a pair of earrings on a honeymoon trip, and what that ended up meaning to me not committing to those earrings. It's interesting that you describe the original versions, the, the condensed 400-word versions, as, as poetic. As you write in your essay about your life at The New Yorker, your initial attempts to sort of make your way into The New Yorker world were as a 
teenager submitting your poems. Yes, <laughs> I did. I think I began submitting my poems. I, what do I say in the book? Well, I was probably about 12. They all came back. I think that piece about the New Yorker is the closest thing to actual memoir mm -hmm. in the book. It's a, it, ha, it starts at a particular time, and it ends in the early 90s, and it covers a, a period of my life and the life of the magazine in, in a fairly consecutive, if ruminative way. Ruminative and, I'd say, also elliptical in a way that, as you draw out in the essay, sheds light on the, the atmosphere of The New Yorker at that time in the 1980s, that it was an environment of ellipses and indirectness and things not said, things, things sort of unspoken. Yeah, I think it was the policy, if you see something, don't say something. <laughs> and everybody saw very different things. It, it was a kind of dream world, and a, it was, I think I say somewhere that it, it was like marrying into an eccentric family. And those were formative years, because I came to The New Yorker when I was 22 or 23, and left just about the time I had my first child, which was 10 years later. Circling back to what we were talking about, about the poetry aspect, it seems to me that many of the essays, in the way that you shift from, almost, I guess, from impression to impression, as you're, you're sort of building up these memory chains, that there is a poetic approach to it, even though it is in prose. Again, in the New Yorker essay, you talk about how you were writing on a manual typewriter, and if you hit the line break before the bell goes off, You've got a poem, but if you <laughs> if you keep I mean, going, it's then it's prose. I'm not sure really young people understand that. <laughs> but anyway, I, as I say, I do think that it seems like a very poetic approach that you were taking in these essays. People have said that. I really can't speak to that because it is simply the way that I think and write. So I don't think I use a different kind of... I'm not conscious of using an approach or saying, oh, well, I'm going to write this as a poet or I'm going to write this as, as a journalist. I think it's always about making connections, whether it's between words or between images or between things that you remember or things that you've learned all the time, sort of snap, snap, snap. So making those constellations. And I don't think that I work that differently between prose and, and poetry. So it's not a conscious, well, I'm going to, to write a poetic prose. How did the collection come about? Um, you had mentioned before about being asked to write this, and I was wondering what the thought process was in terms of, of all the nonfiction that you've written over the years for various magazines. What became the organizing principle that created an enlarged heart? Because I know, for example, that there's a very well-regarded cheesemonger essay that you did that, <laughs> okay. that is not in this collection. Right. You know, I think I will at some point, I hope, publish a book of all the reporting pieces because I, I just like to see them somewhere. I haven't gotten around to that. But this book, as I said, started with this piece. I have been away from The New Yorker for a long time. And frankly, I really always did regard myself as a poet and think of myself as a poet. And all the prose writing I'd done had always been mainly for The New Yorker and for a few other pieces, and they'd all always been commissioned. I'd never written anything except papers for school that were just to write prose. I'd never written a short story, for example. So when I wrote this piece, it was the first thing I'd ever written in prose that had not been commissioned. And I showed it to a friend 
and uh, who was at the New Yorker at that time, he still is, and he said, uh, I should show it to David Rednick, and I did, and David called me and 15 minutes later and said, okay, and, and then he printed it. Once it came out in the New Yorker, Knopf, I extraordinarily honored to have been with Knopf, we figured out, over 25 years. And they saw that and said, could you do a book? And I gamely said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how this book came about. And then over, it took me a number of years, I wrote the first piece in the book, Real Estate, almost right away. And it was published by my friend David Lehman. And then I sort of foundered for a bit, trying to think of what I was going to do next, and hit on the idea of going back to the pieces I had written for Holly. And that kind of opened the, the gates to thinking about topics, seeing how I could do this. And, and then I think once I, I did that, it took about two years to write it. Opening the gates is, is such a great metaphor for... You know, something like the Spralonga piece, which, as you say, started out as just a 400-word meditation about a pair of earrings that you didn't buy. And in its final form here, as, as we talked about before, and I think you mentioned 8,000 words, it becomes a much more expansive, you know, the memories seem to come flooding out in a way. Yes, I guess so. I mean, just this morning I was trying to, before she left for school, I was telling my youngest daughter, began to tell her a story about something, and she was brushing her teeth, and she said, Mommy, you can never tell a story without digressing. And it's true. I, I'm always going off on some kind of a tangent, and I think not invented, but this form became <laughs> this form that in which these essays developed became a place for me to put that stuff and, and try to have a, maybe a large enough place for me to go on and off topic. Yeah, you know, the way that you know you'll be tell like you say, you'll be telling the story. And then a person in that story will remind you of a person from an entirely different part of your life. And you'll go into that story. And, but you still are able to, to bring it back around in a very um, organic, let's say, way. I hope so. Thank you. You know, when I teach, I, I tell my students when I teach a class at Yale in, in writing the contemporary essay. And I talk to them about how... You know, when you go for a hike in, in, I don't know, the Appalachian Trail or something, it's wonderful to have an adventure and to discover things and to stop and to pause and all that. But you're also very happy to see those red marks on the trees <laughs> after a little bit. And I'm hoping that in these essays there are just enough red marks on the trees so nobody just gives up in despair and says so she's just leading me into a thicket. I was also intrigued by... You know, you write about, among other things, that honeymoon trip to Italy and summering on the Cape. But in the midst of all that, there's the revelation that you've spent a good chunk of your life really in sort of like a one square mile radius of, of New York City, of Manhattan. Yes, I have. I think I say write just so nobody has any false impressions. I think I say in the first paragraph of the book, I'm the most provincial person in the world. The house where we're conducting this interview right now is, in fact, only a few blocks from... Yes, I lived on 119th Street when I was born, and my children were born in the same hospital that I was born in. But, you know, many people from New York are like this. We let, it's as though we live in a tiny village. There's an essay where you talk about an aspect of that. You know, having been here over the decades... You know, say restaurants, for example, you're mm -hmm. able to sort of mark those transitions of like knowing 
five or six iterations back what was on a particular street corner. Right, right. That, you know, 116th Street used to be the old chock full of nuts. Mm-hmm. Or, well, I think I end the book at Cafe des Artistes, which uh, has disappeared and is now a restaurant called The Leopard. So many institutions in New York disappear and then others come and take their places. So it's always, the city is always renewing itself. So that in a, in a way there's like a, a memory city overlaid onto the, the physical city. Oh, absolutely. There's a kind of ghost map. And everyone I know has that. You know, you can't walk down certain streets because that's where you broke up with the person who you adored in 1987 or that's where your grandmother lived. Or, you know, I think there's hardly a block in New York. I don't have some feeling about one way. There are certain lacunae that I don't know very well, but certainly the Upper West Side is pretty well mapped in the village and the East Side <laughs> with you know, familial and other associations. As you were working on these essays, is there an essayist or, or essayists whose voice seemed like a, a good guidepost to, to think, you know, to have in mind? That's a good question. I, I think of co- the answer is yes and no. You know, of course and not. Joan Didion, of course, MFK Fisher, the Italian writer Natalia Ginsburg, prose by Elizabeth Bishop, uh, William Maxwell, not Henry James particularly. Uh, so yes, I think, you know, you, you read and read and read and it becomes part of your DNA. And you're, you're always, you know, every sentence is a divining rod, isn't it? You know, and, and just the way the streets of the city, you know, you're talking about a kind of ghost geology, I think, for all writers, our antecedents are, are helpful and always present. And at the same time, you said that the no aspect of that is that you don't want to let any one of those ghost voices sort of overwhelm your own performative utterance. I guess. Yeah, I don't feel a danger of that anymore. I mean, I think we're all very much too concerned with everybody having a particular voice. I think everybody has a voice from the start. I mean, you and I have apparently you know, met a couple of times, and if you called me three weeks later on the phone, I would probably know it was you. And, you know, what's wrong with sounding like, I don't know, Shakespeare? Pretty good. <laughs> you know, I think we just do the best we can, and the, as if we try really hard to get it right, then it's going to be our own work. You mentioned earlier the idea that taking some of the more reportive pieces that are less interior, let's say, is, is something that you've, you have in mind as a potential direction to go next. But what are the sorts of writing are you, are you working on? I'm working on two young adult books, which is interesting. I think I, I've written a I think five children's books, and I seem to um, move along as the children get older, except for one, they're all too old now for young adult books, they're real adults. But I started out with tiny little picture books, and I'm kind of moving along, (laughs) catching up to them, so I'm doing that, and I'm thinking about another book of prose with a single, in a way has a single subject, but more overtly a single subject and another book of poems, and the most very exciting, I'm working on the narrative for a new ballet. So that's that's a new project Mm -hmm. that I'm really happy to be working on because it's completely new. That sounds like a very interesting project in that, I mean, because you're shaping a narrative, the words themselves will, you know, float off. How (laughs) wonderful. I think that's the point. I have a friend who says, you know, what is this? A writer who always says his goal is to be anonymous. And I'm also intrigued by the arc of your writing for children. 
in that it seems like, I mean, I gather you, in addition to reading to your children, um, which you do talk a little bit about in the essay, that were you telling them original stories as well? One, let's see, two of the stories, really one of the books came about from a story that I told the children. I did. I really read to the children. Some people really tell their children ongoing chapter length long stories every night. I didn't do that. There's a book that I wrote a couple of years ago, more than that now, called Wallace Hoskins, The Boy Who Grew Down. And that was a bedtime story that I was, I think I was telling to Jack and Rose at the time. And then Albert the dog who liked to ride in taxis was an idea of Rose's. She saw a little dachshund with a coat jumping into a cab and she said she was about four she's 20 now she said oh that's a book don't you think so they weren't they didn't really they came out of more of ideas that the children gave me than telling them actual stories except for Wallace in terms of the the themes and, and the content of these personal essays we have to ask do you still have your black leather coat yes I do and I just had it redone by a marvelous shoemaker on 106th Street. He redyed it so it doesn't look quite as shabby as it did. Yeah. We, we should explain that the history of acquiring this black leather coat and the, the many coats that preceded it is, is one of the, the more elaborate stories in, in the collection. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, clothes, are, clothes really do tell a story, don't you think they always do? At least they do for me. This coat becomes one of those, as we were talking about, before the sort of the material world objects out of which it's possible to generate a whole stream of memories. You know, I don't really think of them as memories because I think they're more, it's more active than that. You know, in that the, the material, we have relationships to the things around us if we pay enough attention. And so that we're, they're part of the props of the story. They were, we're creating our stories through the, our, what we wear, what we like, our houses, our clothes. I think this book is about how, to some ways, how all of those different, they're almost like words in our sentences, aren't they? There's a quick passage here that I think summed up a lot of that approach that I wanted to quote. When we first acquire what will become our memories, we do not recognize them or know how and when we will go back to them or what they will mean. These props, as you say, it's like we don't necessarily know at the time that they're going to be these props. It's a accumulative process. I think it's very rare that something happens where we, when we know it's meaningful. I mean, when you think of your own memories, why is that important? And you don't know at the time, and you look back, and you realize that was the moment things shifted, or that was important, or... That stone came to that you picked up on the beach came to mean something. You don't know it at the time. You know, the future draws us forward, right? More than the past holds us. And in that context, I guess, what are some of the props or the objects that you've been dwelling on in recent days, or, or as you know, now that the book is out and you're thinking about things to to, to write about next? Well, I don't talk about books before sure. I write them at all, but trying to think. Somebody was, I was talking to someone about a professor of mine when I was in college who used to take me out to lunch in, in, in a lovely sort of way and about how, I'm always, I think I'm always just very interested in how people grow up 
and what makes you grow up. And you can grow up at 20, and you can grow up at 50, and you can... I have friends who are growing up at 85. What what are the moments of change? And I think I'm interested in that, where we come to a certain... Almost like the Mayan calendar, you know, we come to a certain end. How does that happen? And what are the things we surround us, ourselves with now? What's important? I think those are interesting moments. We look forward to seeing you write about those kinds of moments in a way that, that expands upon the the writing that you've shared with us in an enlarged heart. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. We've been talking with Cynthia Zarin about her book, An Enlarged Heart, A Personal History, published by Knopf. And I hope you will join us again soon. Thank you.